we have been thinking together the theme refined by fire and we see that the Christian life is the very best life. There's no other life you'd ever want to have. But it's a costly life. Christian life comes with loss. And we have seen examples of that. Here is Joseph. He lost his family. He lost his livelihood. He lost his reputation. He lost his freedom. Here is Job. He lost his health. He lost his children. He lost his fortune. Nearly lost his life. Here is Ruth. She lost her husband and sons. Everything familiar, everything she was planning on was dashed to pieces. And we're going to see the same principle in the life of God's servant, Paul. But if all we think about is loss, we've really missed the big picture. Because Christians count the cost, and we are wide-eyed to what Christ may call us to give up, but our focus is on what we cannot lose, and what is ours forever. And if you're a Christian, we see from the scripture this morning, there is something you cannot lose. There are many things you cannot lose. There is one thing in particular you cannot lose. The 19th century Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle, who was raised in a Christian home, said, we cannot be robbed of God's providence. You cannot lose the providence of God. And after quoting that, B.B. Warfield says, in that saying, the plummet is let down to the very bottom of the Christian's confidence and hope. And we're going to see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see how that transforms the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see what it does in the lives of those he's around. How is the providence of God our great confidence and hope? What difference will it make to you tomorrow morning when you're back at work, when you're back at school, or when you're at home? That's what I want you to look for as we read the scripture. We're going to look at the whole account of Paul's great shipwreck as he is making his way to Rome. But we're just going to read a few verses from it. Before we read, let's join our hearts in prayer, shall we pray? Our Father, how we thank you for your word, how we need your word. It is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Apart from it, we would be in utter darkness. And so we pray that you would shine brightly the light of your word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light. We pray that you would show us the Savior, that we may draw near and live for him in days to come. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 27 at verse 13. Paul is on a ship. They have left port, and we pick up there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Would you turn with me to chapter 28? They do run aground on an island the Isle of Malta. And we read about the conclusion of Paul's journey in Acts 28, verses 11 to 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puzzioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Luke has been walking us through the ministry, the storied life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it seems at one level his ministry grinds to a halt as we come to the end of Acts. Instead of going from town to town and preaching the gospel and establishing churches, he is a ward of the Roman state. He is a prisoner in chains. And he goes from courtroom to courtroom, making his defense. Paul is an innocent man, but no Roman official has the courage to acquit him, has the courage to do the right thing. And so Paul reaches the point where he is faced with a choice. Either he will be assassinated by his enemies, or the situation must change. And so Paul invokes a privilege that was his as a Roman citizen. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And what that meant is you could take your case, a case where Paul had been found neither guilty nor innocent, and you could take it to the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, and he would hear your case personally. And that's what will happen. But Paul is in Palestine and Nero is in Rome. And he has to get from here to there. And you can't get on a plane and be off in an hour. Paul has to travel by boat. And there are many boats with many passengers and many stops. And Luke, who is with Paul, is journaling and he is chronicling Paul's movements. And that's where we find ourselves in chapters 27 and 28. In the verses just before the ones we read, Paul leaves the coast of Palestine and he comes to the Isle of Crete, changing ships along the way. And there's an urgency. They're going to have to spend the winter in some port. You can't sail in the sea between October and April. It's just too dangerous. And so they find a port, but the crew decides we need to find a better port. If we're going to be here all winter, we might as well be in a nicer harbor. Paul says, I don't think you should do that, but they set out anyway. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. Everything goes smoothly to begin until a powerful wind from the northeast blows them out to sea. And they are in open sea and they are at the mercy of wind and wave. And as we read, they begin to take emergency measures. They are jettisoning cargo. They are reinforcing the ship. And for two solid weeks, they are tossed by the storm. Luke says in verse 20, you couldn't see the sun or the stars. 
That means you can't navigate. That means you are in the open sea and you are helpless. And everybody knew it. We're told in verse 20 of those 276 passengers on board, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It was despair on that boat. But in God's mercy, they approach land. They come to the Isle of Malta, off Sicily. But the boat hits a shoal in the bay and the wind and waves begin to lash the boat to pieces. And everybody jumps off and swims to shore and Luke says not a soul died. Every single person survived. And they're on that little island for three months. And the people are kind to them. And as we picked up in our reading in chapter 28, they get on another boat and they get to Rome. And when Paul gets to Rome, he lays eyes on his Christian brothers and sisters. And the scripture says he thanked God and took courage. It was an extraordinary trip. I doubt any of us have been on a trip quite like this. And it's a gripping read. But God didn't put this in Scripture to entertain us. He put this in Scripture to teach us. What does he want you and me to learn from this harrowing trip of the Apostle Paul? And there are two lessons that are stamped in these verses for you and for me as we think about God refining his servants, two things we keep coming back to. We're going to see in the first place the sovereignty of God writ large in this scripture. How does God show himself sovereign in these verses? You see it in two ways. In the first place, there is the plan of God. What is the plan of God? We don't have to guess. When Paul made it safely to Rome, as he was awaiting trial, he began to write letters. And one of those letters was to the church in Ephesus. And in the first chapter at verse 11, he says, believers, we have been predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. You have to imagine Paul thinking about this trip as he wrote those words to the Ephesians. So what is the purpose of God? What is the eternal plan of God? And again, we don't have to guess. You go back to the beginning of this book, and we see on a mountain the risen Jesus with 11 apostles, the 11 apostles that remain. 
and he tells them, you are going to be my witnesses. And you will start in Jerusalem, you will go to Judea and Samaria, and you will go to the end of the earth. It is an improbable mission. These 11 are to bear the name of Christ to the world. And they do. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Acts of the Apostles takes us by the hand as we watch the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And we learn it will be the Apostle Paul who will bear the gospel to the end of the earth. And for Paul to do that, he has to go to Rome. When he is in Ephesus, Ministering, he says in chapter 19, verse 21, to the believers, after I have been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. When he is in prison in Caesarea, in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus appears to Paul and says to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And did you notice in the middle of the storm, God sends an angel to Paul, verse 23 in our passage, and he says, Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God hasn't forgotten you, Paul. You don't know where you are, but God knows where you are, and he knows where you will be. And here is a double mercy. Every soul on board this ship, their lives will be spared. God will see to it. So there's God's purpose. And there is Paul's place in that purpose. The gospel will go to the end of the earth no force in all creation will stop it, and Paul will go to Rome as part of that purpose. He will testify to Caesar about Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. Now, you and I make lots of plans, and most of them never work out the way we think they're going to work out. A lot of them never leave our head. A lot of them fail spectacularly. Not God. And what God wants you to see is that his plan never fails. Why is it that God's plan never fails? Answer the providence of God. His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. That's what the Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on the providence of God. And that's exactly what we see in this scripture. Think of all the forces that are at work. 
there are contrary winds. There is this powerful wind from the northeast that threatens to destroy the ship. Here is the ship lost and helpless at sea for two weeks. The ship is beached in the bay of the Isle of Malta and it is broken to pieces. And you remember as Paul is gathering firewood on the Isle of Malta, he puts his hand into a pile of sticks and he pulls out a viper attached to it. He should have died, but he didn't. Because God is sovereign over the forces of nature. And God is sovereign over the actions of men. We see wicked and selfish actions. The captain's reckless decision to leave port and look for a better one. Sailors who try to abandon the ship in its hour of need. Soldiers who say as they come into the Isle of Malta, better we kill the prisoners than risk one of them escaping and we be held accountable. And they're good actions of men. The soldier that Paul is chained to is an honorable man who looks out for Paul. The ship's passengers are washed up on an island. There were stories in antiquity of locals coming onto the beach and slaughtering people who had washed up on shore. Not the Maltese. They care for Paul and everyone else. And behind all this, as Paul knew, was the malice of Satan. Remember, he writes to the Thessalonians, he said, I wanted to come to you, but Satan prevented me. Satan had frustrated and had attacked and thwarted Paul before, and you, you can trace his footprints in this chapter. But you see, God is working his purpose out. And nothing in all creation and no human being resists his will. And these things are not an obstacle course for God to run. These are the very things that he appoints to accomplish his will. God says, Paul, you will get to Rome, and this is exactly how you will get to Rome. So there is the sovereignty of God. God's plan and God's providence. And Paul knew this. It was his rock and his support when he did not understand what was going on around him. How does this apply to us this morning? Do you know what Paul knew? that God is on his throne. He does according to his will in the host of heaven 
and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? That heaven and earth and all who are in it bow down to him. All things come from the hands of God. You know, you sometimes hear the expression, and maybe you've used it. It's a God thing. What do people mean when they say it's a God thing? Something big, something good, something extraordinary. But you know, everything is a God thing. You get a flat tire on the way to work. That's as much in the providence of God as the great and extraordinary and wonderful things that happen in your lives. And that is a comfort to the believer. Why is that a comfort? Because Paul knew that what God was doing in the bigger picture was to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring sinners to faith in Jesus Christ and to glorify his mercy and justice through Jesus Christ. And Paul threw himself into the work that God called him because he was committed to the glory of God. Paul found comfort and rest in the purpose of God because he knew what God was doing, even when he didn't understand. And so can you and I. Friend, you may be in a place in life you don't understand what's going on around you. In your family, at work, at school, in your own heart. Look to God. Look to what he's doing in the big picture. And find a firm place to stand. And you confess. You remember the words of Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of God. You remember the words of Eli, you've been studying 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18, he has delivered horrible news. And he says, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. What does the psalmist say of the believer in Psalm 112, verse 7? He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And you pray the prayer of the Savior. Not my will, but thy will be done. Will you pray? Will you confess? what you know to be true from the Bible. Well, there's God's sovereignty. But with that is our duty. That's the second thing I want you to see. It's often said, if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that not an atom is out of place in the universe that he orders and appoints all things to come to pass in just the way that they do, 
that will paralyze you. That you will give up decisions and actions and choices and throwing yourself into the things of life. And Paul never got that memo. Never a man more committed to the sovereignty of God, never a man who was more engaged and who threw himself in the work that God called him to do. What kind of fruit does this conviction bring in a person's life? Well, we got one answer to that in the life of Joseph. I want you to look at another answer in the life of Paul. Three things this truth gripping the heart does for a person. And the first is confidence. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul is reporting to the crew and to the passengers, this is what God's angel, his messenger, said to me. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. Now understand, Paul's not in church on Sunday. This is not a minister speaking to the faithful. He is with crew and passengers, almost all of whom are pagans. And as they are looking at what's taking place, they are seeing in their minds the wrath of the gods, or the spinning of fate, or sheer luck or chance. And Paul says no, no to all of them. Let me tell you what this is, and he is clear. This is the outworking of God's will. He points them to God's sovereignty, and he points them to God's mercy. On this occasion, God said, I will spare the lives of these people. And having testified to God as sovereign and merciful, Paul says, you know what? I believe him. I believe him. He takes heart, and he tells those who are with him, you take heart. And he is not afraid to stand with God. Verse 23, who is this God? He is the God whose I am and whom I serve. Paul will stake his ground on this God. That took confidence to speak this way to despairing pagan people who were on the brink of death. Paul is exuding confidence in God, and he is unafraid and unabashed to say, I stand with this God. Will you stand with me? So there is confidence, and the second thing we see is service. You know, as you read this voyage, 
it becomes very clear that order is breaking down. No one seems to know what to do. But as you read on, there is a man who stands up to lead. And it's not a Roman soldier. It is not the captain of the ship. It is the Apostle Paul. What an unlikely man to rise as the leader of these 276 people. And how does Paul lead? He leads as the Lord Jesus Christ taught him to lead. He serves. He ministers the word of God to them. We have just seen him do that. He sees the sailors later in this chapter trying to escape. And he says, do not let those men escape. We need their expertise if we're to survive. And they stay. We read in verse 33, Paul sees the passengers have not eaten in two weeks. Fear will do that. And Paul says, you, you need strength for the trip ahead. And he breaks bread and he leads them in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Paul is a man who serves those around him because he is confident in his sovereign God. There's confidence, there's service, and then the closing note, there is gratitude. Finally, they arrive at Rome. And did you notice what Paul does? Chapter 28, verse 15, two things. He thanked God and he took courage. He thanked God. Not chance, not fate, not his lucky stars, not his skills, his intelligence, his persuasive abilities. He thanks God. He is not a man who has been embittered or hardened or has become resentful because of this experience. God, how dare you do this to me? He is melting in gratitude. And in thanking God, he took courage. There are more trials ahead, more than Paul knows. But sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Paul takes stock of where God has brought him and he says, if God can bring me here, I will trust him for one more day. This experience has not unnerved Paul, it has nerved Paul. He is a man of greater courage as he has looked back on what God has done. He looks forward to an uncertain future but in the certainty of the provision of his God. And Paul says, God, I trust you. I love you. I will follow you where you take me and I will serve you with the courage you provide. So we come to a close. What does this say to us? When Paul spoke those words to the crew and the passengers on that boat, 
they were very simple. He was declaring his trust in God. And he told these unbelievers, who as far as they knew were on the cusp of death, you need this God. And he pointed them to his sovereignty. He pointed them to his goodness. And Paul says, I know this God. I serve this God in Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that Jesus had saved him from a fate far worse than death by sea. Jesus had poured out his life on the cross to spare the Apostle Paul from eternal death. And he had won life and salvation and glory and had freely given it to this undeserving sinner. And Paul says, he can be your savior too. Have you come to this savior? Have you put your trust in this savior? Who rescues you from eternal plight who brings you into eternal life and joy to everyone who trusts him. Have you done this? And then you see Paul had a firm grip on the sovereignty of God. And that energized Paul to serve others selflessly Being convicted of God's sovereignty does not make us selfish, it makes us selfless. As you think about days ahead, as you think about the character of your God, ask yourself, how then can I serve those around me? It may be as simple as putting the needs of my family or my roommates before my own. May mean giving of your time. It may mean encouraging someone who's faint-hearted, speaking a hard word to someone who is straying or wandering. It may mean telling someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your little part and that's my little part in the bigger picture. God bringing a multitude of sinners to himself and establishing them in Jesus Christ. And then there's gratitude and courage. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the more you and I look at God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more gratitude ought to well up in our hearts. How often Paul speaks of his thankfulness in his letters. 
And that's not something he gins up. It is something that comes from a lifetime of training his mind on who his God is. And with that comes courage. You want to be more grateful. You want to have more courage. We live in a world that has precious little of either gratitude or courage, then you look to your God and you see who he is. You see his sovereign power and mercy and you see him in Jesus Christ. Christian, you can lose a lot of things in this world. You will never lose the providence of God. And thank God for that. What a gift. Look to him. Be thankful. Take heart. And live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess we see too little of this wonderful fruit in our own lives. And we think too little on the glory of your character and works in the scripture. Father, help us even this day, perhaps even for the first time, to see you for who you are, fully revealed in the scripture, and help us to draw near and nearer to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a refuge and a haven for sinners. Help us taking confidence to find fresh courage and gratefulness that we may spend and be spent for him who loved us and gave himself for us, even Jesus Christ. Amen.